0: Spiritual discernment is spiritual sightedness it's wisdom but it's 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 more than just worldly wisdom it's spiritual in nature but it it's the kind of wisdom that gives you competence as to how life really works, but life not just only in the physical realm but life in the spiritual realm as well, therefore. You can't have spiritual discernment or this spiritual sightedness without being spiritually formed, which really means to be spiritually transformed. Using a quote by a man by the name of Ernest Larkin, we frame the process for our hearts to become not only prepared but actually to have procedures and and instinctive reactions and responses to the world around us that reflect the wisdom of God, reflect spiritual sightedness, reflect our new sensibility of being born of the Spirit. Discernment in its fullness takes a practiced heart, he says, fine-tuned to hear the Word of God and the single-mindedness to follow that Word in love. It is truly a gift from God, but not one drop from the skies fully formed. It is a gift cultivated by a prayerful life and the search for self knowledge. This is what we want to talk about today self awareness, self knowledge. You see, doing things my way, you doing things your way, this is what comes most naturally to us. We have to admit that egocentricity, Self-control, not, not the fruit of the spirit self-control, but, but being in control are fundamental dynamics of the human soul. This is why you have to be spiritually reborn, because the fundamental dynamics take you away from God, not towards God. And we know, if you, you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that you've been called to yield, to surrender to God's will. And, and at times there is a genuine desire to do so but this irresistible tendency to assert our own will and even in a way to use the spiritual dimension as a resource for asserting our own will, that we pray so that we will get what we want. Uh, we read our Bible so that God will be in our debt because we're so spiritual or we do religious things. But when you see Jesus, here you see a completely surrendered will even though he made his will known that he would like is there another way for this cup to pass from me is there another way than forsakenness is there another way than becoming sin yet he said not my will but yours be done we know that's we know that's the pattern we know that's you know it's not that you have no will no desires no longings whatsoever and it's not that at times those don't conflict with what God is calling you to do but this willing surrender that Jesus does in the garden is what the spirit is trying to do in your life and my life but here's one of the issues is that anytime we have to choose something other than you know our own self and its immediate gratification we don't go into a willing surrender, what we tend to do is to turn to, I've gotta have greater willpower and I've gotta have greater resolve. And so then trying to choose God becomes more this idea, I'm gonna gonna determine to do better, kind of a grim determination, which is still me being in control of what I'm committed to, me being in control of what I'm willing to do for God which has the end result that God now he owes me because I've, I've determined that I'm not going to do this and I'm going to do that. And so, you know, I've made these big sacrifices. Well, that has no value in the spiritual realm. The only value is what Jesus did in Gethsemane, you know, a surrender, a a trusting surrender to the love of his father. That even though, he would be forsaken. He would still triumph over death. He would still triumph over sin. See, the problem for many of us is we treat God like a diet. Okay, I'm going to cut out these foods even though I love these foods and they comfort me and they're the foods I go to when I'm depressed. We treat God like that instead of recognizing we're surrendering and, and leading our own hearts to the source, to the fountain of abundant life. We're more in touch with what we're losing than what we're gaining. So these things, this willpower, determination, even discipline are not enough for for real life in Christ and being a Christ follower. We have to recognize that what Christ is asking, asking is not that we do better, but that we surrender our will, our heart. The heart is really the starting point. It's the learning to desire God's will. And 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 to have the honesty, which I think is true humility, to have the honesty of all the places where surrendering to God's will is so difficult for you, uh, even if it's so impossible. Because you see, By staying in control and asserting your own will, you're actually keeping God at arm's length. And the only one who can transform the unwilling places is God himself, his spirit. And it's only his love and the experience of his love that will let you let go of the things that you're afraid to let go of. And control is one of the biggest ones of those things see, until you don't need pride, you'll hold on to pride. Until you don't need fear, you'll hold on to fear. But by holding on to fear and pride, you're not giving a place for your new identity, which is based in love. God so loved you. Even he commended his love towards you while you were still a sinner, that Christ died for you. And humility. If God is for you, who can be against you? You see... Instead of you having to be for you and hoping God is for you, you know he's for you. You've resolved that issue. So here's this stubborn problem that we face. And it's a problem that keeps us from spiritual discernment. It's our intrinsic willfulness versus our willingness. What we have in, in Jesus is you have a strong man with a yielded will, empowered by the Spirit. What you have in us is oftentimes you have willful men and women who are trying to will themselves to do the will of God, and it's not working. So There has to be a willingness, a surrender. There has to be a surrender to truth. There has to be a rejection of the lies. This week we, we talked in our devotionals in our workbook about two spiritual disciplines And again, how you use those disciplines can be out of willfulness or it can be out of willingness. So when I read my Bible, do I read it willfully? (laughs) In other words, I'm going to figure out what, you know, all the information, I'm going to figure out what God wants from me, and then I'm going to will myself to do it. Or is it relational? Is it willing? Where I go to the scriptures and say, God, this is your letter to me. This is your breath on every page to me. It breathes your love to me. It breathes the life, that you're my source of life. So you go to the scriptures and you encounter God. You encounter his love and you encounter his wisdom. You put yourself into the stories. You put yourself into the teaching that's there and you apply it to your heart and you let his word examine you all the way down to the deepest part of your being. Or do you just read it because you know I need to start my day with a quiet time and I need to fulfill a responsibility I, I I have met many people who do not realize how important it is to have be willing instead of willful, and they don't even know they are expressing their willfulness when when they when they resist any passion for the Lord when they resist any depth of, of, of intimacy with the Lord, but they say, I checked the box. I had 20 minutes of prayer, or I had 20 minutes of Bible reading and 10 minutes of prayer, so I've done my duty for the day, so now my day should go well. You understand, that kind of, that kind of Bible reading is basically willfulness. I'm willing myself to read and pray so that I can have a good day. It's utilitarian, it's not relational. It's not intimate. I um, mean, you think about it in terms of any relationship. If you say to a spouse or a friend or a child, you say, well, I gave you 20 minutes today. That should be enough. Now you should be good for the whole day. You see, it. what most people, and this is sad, what most people are doing with Bible reading, they see it as a spiritual discipline, yes, but they do it out of willfulness instead of willingness. And so the Bible reading becomes even more uh, leading into uh, the opposite of wisdom, foolishness. Because if it's not an encounter with God, if it's not a surrendered encounter to the Word of God, then you're still in control. And it's still an issue of pride. It's still an issue of fear. It's not an issue of love and humility. Well, we talked in our devotional book about the kind of prayers that begin to transform you into a person of wisdom and spiritual discernment. And the first and foremost of those is that when you go to God in prayer, you have to go. The only prayer that has any basis with God is a prayer of his child. This is what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that there was no other way to approach God but as child to father. And you have the rights and you have the privileges of being a child. John 1 is so clear on this. It says, as many as received Jesus, he gave them right, the right to be called children of God. So the child has that right to the father, that access. But that means the way I pray is I'm speaking to the all-knowing, all-powerful God. So there, there has to be a childlike trust in my prayer. Again, I can have willful prayer where I go to him and I I tell him what he needs to do for me and how he needs to do for me. And, and I'm making some kind of negotiation, some kind of transaction. I'm either doing it on the basis of, you know, how, uh, you know, how religious I am, or I'm doing on the basis of how much I pray or how passionate or how long I pray. And Jesus says, those are pagan and hypocritical prayers and they will not be heard, and so it has to be a, a prayer where the acknowledgement: I'm I'm the child, you're the father, you know everything, I know almost nothing. But if I come to you, you're going to, you're going to meet with me as a father, as the perfect father who meets with his child. Think about this for a minute. Jesus did not operate in any way apart from his father. He said. I only do what I see the Father doing. Well, where did, he, where did he most see the Father? Well, however long his day was, however hard his day was, he always got away to a solitary place to be with his Father. And when he taught us to pray, he didn't say, pray to God. He didn't say, pray to the King or pray to the Sovereign. He said, our Father. Only prayer is the prayer of family and the prayer of child. Like trust. But see, this leads us to, if I trust him, then a spiritual discipline then is is this aspect of, of what's called the prayer of indifference. Because when I come and I say, this is what has to happen, when I come and I say, this is when it has to happen, or else, you know, I won't believe in you, or else you don't love me, or else you're not good, and and, and, I, and I'm coming in and, I, and I'm hammering away at him with, you know, it's got to be this way. And it's, you've, you've got to do it. And I bring my anxiety and my fear. And I'm, and I'm trying to use leverage to get him to do what I want him to do. That's not, he's not the father at that point. Um, he's my assistant. He's, he's the one who has to, you know, be the bully for me. And so I'm not, really, I'm not really praying to God at that point. I'm praying out of willfulness. And so this idea of, of having my heart trained to be indifferent to anything but the will of God. This is, doesn't mean that, that I just deny everything I want. It's that I bring everything under the will of God. Even things that are contrary to the will of God or things that he's asking me to wait on. I trust him. I entrust my deepest desires to him. This is what Mary did as a young teenager when the angel said, you are highly favored of God and you will bear a son. And she says, I've never, you know, never been with a man. How can this be? She's, she, she doesn't just immediately say, yes, be it unto me as you have said. No, she goes, how can this be? She's a real person with a real will. But what does she do? She surrenders her will. Here I am. She Says the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. Do you think she understood what was going to happen? No, do you think she had any idea the consequences of what was going to happen? No, but she she surrendered to being indifferent to anything except the will of God. Same with the Lord Jesus and Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. And then this other prayer that's that really reveals willfulness versus willingness it says, If any of you you are lacking wisdom, ask God. So this is willingness. I'm willing to ask God for his wisdom. And then the the willingness goes on and says, who gives to all generous and ungrudgingly. Again, you see, I'm in that position of, I trust you. I've surrendered to your love. I'm surrendering to your wisdom. And then it says, it will be given to you. And so here, again, we're coming to that place where we say, I'm not mixing my wisdom with God's wisdom. I'm seeking God's wisdom only. Willfulness says, you know, I just want to supplement to what I already know or I want you to confirm what I already know. And James says, no, you got to come and say, I'm emptying myself of my own wisdom that I might be filled with the wisdom of God. Because he says, otherwise, you're a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways, and you can expect nothing from God. There's some sense in which we have to be even become indifferent to this need we have to be seen as wise and not fools in the eyes of others. And we have to come to that broken place and that surrendered place that says, I'm ready to receive the wisdom of God and then I'm ready to to hold on to that alone and follow that with all my heart. Now, I I think this is so important because you see, We live in a world, even in the Christian world, where people can get away with not being wise and not being discerning for a time. We see this with leaders. We see this with people who are even celebrities and public figures in the Christian world or Christian church. Here's a very sobering statement about leadership. A leader... And, and in some ways you may say to me you're not a leader, but any, any mother is a leader, any father, any teacher. There are places where we're leading other people in our, in our life, whether we have a position of leadership or not. But this writer that I really enjoy called, named Parker Palmer, he says, a leader is a person who must take special responsibility for what's going on inside him herself, inside his or her consciousness lest the act of leadership create more harm than good. In, In a way, you see, Paul is talking about this in some ways in Romans 7. He talks about the internal, the inner life struggle. Again, it's a struggle, a clash of willfulness versus willingness. You know, Paul says there, he says, when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. Uh, Paul understood the dangers of unexamined leadership. Saul, when it, before he was converted to Christ and started using his Roman name, Paul, the man known as Saul, this rabbi, he was zealously committed to doing what was wrong while believing he was doing what was right. His damage was even that people were killed because of his zeal what I'm seeing more and more and I see people with responsibilities and I see whether it's, you know, abusive parents or abusive spouses or abusive teachers or abusive leaders, what you see is often why they are so dangerous is they believe what they're doing is right when what they're doing is actually wrong. This again goes back to if we're not growing in self-awareness, if we're not being honest and putting ourselves in the scriptures, looking at our prayer lives in a way that's honest and and self-examined. Again, discernment only comes through a practiced heart. There is every possibility that the leadership, whether it's parenting or friendship or being the boss or whatever it is, the leadership may in the end do more harm than the good that we hoped we would do. Now, why is some of this? Well, we live in a society, even our Christian society, where people rise to leadership based on their extroversion. In other words, on their outward appearance, on on how they look, how they act publicly, which means that most of us, particularly who rise up into leadership, we tend to ignore what's going on in the inside so that we can conform to what people want us to be on the outside in order to be successful. Many, many leaders, whether we're talking about secular or Christian, rise to power by operating very competently and effectively in the external world, but often at the cost, way too often at the cost of internal awareness. I mean, look again and think about what's happening to some of the leaders that have been greatly respected. Willow Creek Church, uh, one of the most successful churches, particularly in my generation, the pastor was sexually abusing women for 30 years. Robbie Zacharias, one of the greatest apologists I've ever heard in my life, was sexually uh uh, abusing and, and uh, hiding a, a deeply immoral alternative life and only found out fully when he was dead and now devastation to his family and to his ministry. Hellsong uh, in New York City celebrity pastor hanging out with Justin Bieber and all these people. You see the externals look so exciting. Internally, He's having affairs and he's uh, a total mess on the inside. Abusive culture, abusive leader. Parker Palmer says, I met many leaders whose confidence in the external world is so high that they regard the inner life as illusory, as a waste of time, as a magical fantasy trip into a region that doesn't even exist. But the link between leadership and spirituality calls us to re-examine that denial of the inner life. Okay, grasp this with me. See, if you stay willful, you can have external success. But inner life fall apart. And have an alternative life, an immoral life, kind of a spiritual schizophrenic. Or you begin to realize that the only life that matters in terms of all eternity is a willing life. Not a life of grim determination where you try to keep not eating the foods you shouldn't eat and eat the foods that don't taste good. But actually the life where you surrender joyfully to the fountain of living water. To the one who said, I've come that you might have life and you have abundantly. Whatever's true of those three leaders that I mentioned, their inner life was not drawing from the source of life. Their external lives willfully, determinately were popular, successful celebrities, but their internal life was not. I remember one time, this is a simple illustration, but I was leading a prayer meeting And it was such a powerful prayer meeting. People were repenting, confessing sin. And these were all leaders. And it was, people were weeping, people on their faces. I, you know, just opened it up for the Spirit to meet with these leaders. And and they did, and he did, except for one leader. And this leader, you know, withheld and even criticized uh, the group for being so passionate. And he told about, you know, his, he didn't understand he was revealing his willfulness. You know, I have 20 minutes with God in his word, and then I have 10 minutes of prayer every day kind of thing. Very perfunctory, very utilitarian. Only studied his Bible for his sermons. But he ended up leaving the ministry because when he was saying all this to us, he was having an affair. So you see, your spiritual passion has to go somewhere. And you cannot willfully hold back the level of spiritual passion that everyone has to do good at some point the dam breaks and that willfulness breaks down and you pursue those dark desires you pursue those things that are destructive because you can't by willfulness hold back what has not been yielded to christ and cleansed and renewed and healed when there's willingness, you say, Lord, I have these dark desires. Lord, I have these difficulties. I have these places where I seem to be defeated. And you go to the victor who alone can give you victory. And you yield your defeat to him. And you yield your weaknesses to him. And you yield your struggles to him. You don't try to willfully change them. You go to the one who by your surrender can change you. Well, as we look at this, begin to realize why is this so important? Well, the Bible tells us so clearly about it. Proverbs 18, 14. a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? That's why your inner life is a priority. In the Old Testament, the word spirit meant wind, or force, power, energy. When the Old Testament uses the word spirit, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? It's really talking about the energy and the passion to take on life. A crushed spirit is to look at life and have no desire in it, no joy in it, cast down to the point of having no desire to live. What happens is, obviously, when a spirit is crushed, when the will to live, when the wind has gone out of the sails, so to speak, that's, that's really a very biblical metaphor for living life in the spirit, wind in the sails. When the wind has gone out of the sails, we still, in our willfulness, will try to meet our needs. Now, the ultimate dark desire is to end our own life and to take our own life and to take away all the pain and disappointment and all of that. That is a, an attempt to meet a need, but in a very illegitimate way. But all these other ways are equally willful. Have an affair, uh, you know, go to substances, go to something that, that uh, will distract or, or distort or depress uh, your experience of pain. This idea, all the way back to the days of Solomon, is that a spirit can be crushed. And if the inner life is crushed, then you can't even handle life. Whereas if the inner life is strong, then even if the outer life has cancer or the outer life has uh, physical sickness that you're dealing with, the inner life can handle the outer life. But the outer life cannot handle the inner life. So how we process and dress our circumstances has everything to do with how successfully we will navigate reality well. It's interesting when Paul prays in all the letters that he wrote, he never prays for their circumstances to change, but he always prays for their inner life. Ephesians, Paul prays for them. He says that God will strengthen you in your innermost being. Proverbs says, if you're not tending to your inner life, It calls you a fool. In a way, you could put it this way, are we more concerned with depositing grace and strength and love and encountering the love and the source of our life in God in our inner life? Proverbs says, far more important than depositing money in the bank. I I invite you to join with me not just today but tomorrow as we, we continue this idea of How does God look at our inner life and how can we strengthen our inner life? But today I just wanted to to say to you this. The fight between your willfulness and your willingness is always real. But the more that you surrender and lean into the love of God, you'll find that you're being made willing. I remember when I first started understanding this a little bit because I... I wanted to serve God, but I was very willful. I wanted to be committed to God. I wanted to be, you know, effective for God. I wanted to be successful for God. And I didn't realize, I didn't have the self-awareness to know. It was really all about me. I wanted to be successful, and I wanted God to make me successful. And I wanted respect and, and love and adoration and all these things. And it was all about me. But in my, in my deceived state, my lack of self-knowledge, I thought, well, I'm making it all about you, so surely you will make me successful. And what he was doing is he was showing me I was trying to live the Christian life from a willfulness instead of living my life in response to his love in joyful willingness. And it was, as I read a book uh, on a a great intercessor by the name of Reese Howells. And he said the Holy Spirit very deliberately, very intently came to him and said, will you let me take you where you cannot get on your own? And and he said, it will, I will take you through some very difficult times to get there. But when you get there, you will know that you're there and it'll be a place that you could never have gotten to on your own. And uh, Reese Howells thought about it. He had a sense that it was a, an invitation that had just a, an opening and w- the opening would close. And he came back and he said, I, I'm willing to be made willing, he said. At that point, it was like, he, he, you know, he was wrestling with his willfulness because he had been trying to be a good Christian a good minister, all this stuff in his own will, in his own determination, what the spirit was saying, you can't get there by willfulness. Are you willing? And the best he could do, because he was such an honest man, the best he could do is he says, I'm willing to be made willing. And I, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're willing and you'll just jump right in and say, Lord, I am willing. Take me where I cannot get on my own. Or maybe you're like Reese House. Lord, I don't know all that you're asking of me right now, but I'm willing to be made willing. Here's what I've found. If you give the Lord an inch, he'll gladly take a mile. If you give him an opening, you open up a little, you surrender a little, and you begin to realize it's the best decision you ever made. Whether you today you're saying, Lord, I'm willing, which is what he's asking, or you, are you able to say, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. The spirit wants to take you where you can't get on your own. And when you get there, you'll know you're there. God bless you.